Welcome to Whitechapel Church Online. You're currently listening to preaching from our Sunday services. We believe that when the preaching happens, that collectively we're hearing the Word of God, and that God's Word has the power to change who we are. We also believe that God can meet you right where you're at, and that He has a Word specifically for you. We hope that you enjoy today's sermon, and we would love to have you at an in-person service. Head over to whitechapelchurch.com to get more info. Enjoy the sermon, and be blessed. Uh, we're going to look at some scriptures in the book of Acts, chapter 15 this morning. And so uh, we're continuing our study in, um, in the book of Acts, and continuing looking at the life of Paul and Barnabas. And so this passage uh, is a little, a little bit different. If you will uh, remember what's taken place so far, Paul and Barnabas have been on a missionary journey. And in this missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas have been on, uh, they visited a number of cities. They went through hard times. Uh, Paul, at one point, you remember, uh, just a couple of chapters ago, uh, he was left for dead. A drug outside the city gates, and uh, he was nurtured back to health and healed by the Lord. Uh, but they route back through the city, and they get back to Jerusalem. They get back to Jerusalem at the end of chapter 14 of the book of Acts, and what we see is they're celebrating the multitude, the thousands of people that have given their life to Jesus Christ, and about six churches that have been planted. Leaders have been put in place. Pastors have been put in place in these churches. And they're celebrating what God has been doing. And then we get to the book of uh, uh, Acts chapter 15. And what we see happen here is a problem that actually comes up in the early church. And you know what I love about the Bible? The thing that I love about the Bible, God's word, that he inspired. The infallible, inerrant Word of God is that it gives us the good and the bad. And the amazing thing about us getting the good and the bad in God's life, or in God's Word, is that in all of our lives, as we just sang, He's been faithful. And the beautiful part of what we see here in the beginning of Acts chapter 15, even though thousands of people have been saved and given their life to Jesus, the Jews and the Gentiles alike, and as this gospel has begun to spread for all people, what we see in here is the faithfulness of God. And the reason that we see the faithfulness of God is because of the mercy and the grace of God that is always present and always active in our life. And this is why I believe that God desires for us to continue growing as a refuge of grace. Because his grace active in our life always points back, always points back to the grace of God. His grace in our lives points back to his grace. That's the only way that it can happen. It's like a mirror. And so we just reflect back that grace so that others can actually see. But the Bible gives us the truth, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful, the joy, and the sorrow. The Bible gives us all of that. And here in Acts chapter 15, we begin to see some dissension arise in these early believers. And the amazing thing, the thing that I love the most out of this is the authors of the scripture, if this, was, if this Jesus stuff, if you will, was fake, 
Chapter 15 and 16 would have been two chapters that were left out because they would have been just telling all of the good stuff, all of the rosy stuff, all of the, the, uh, the ooey-gooey good-feeling stuff. But this chapter, 15 and 16, these two chapters, 15 and 16, actually remind us that there's junk that takes place in our lives. And in the junk that happens in our life, we have to keep walking in the grace of God. But the choice is always ours. Are we going to get wrapped up in the junk and take the bait from the enemy? Or are we going to ask God, God, what is it that you're doing in this moment, in the middle of this junk or this hardness in my life? The promise from God, from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 30, verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Now, this was not just for the Hebrew children, and this was not just for Jerusalem of the Old Testament, but this was a promise of God for all generations to come. And we see that beginning in Genesis chapter 1 in God's grace for his creation. We see it poured out in a new way in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered into the world. God was gracious in his creation when he spoke the world into existence. God was gracious when he made man and then he made woman. God was gracious when sin entered into the world and he did not destroy Adam and Eve immediately. The Lord longs to be gracious to us. Our job is to discover and celebrate the grace that he actually has for us. And this is where we have to be as a refuge of grace. God's grace is active and present in our life. We can choose to ignore it or we can choose to discover it and actually celebrate it. And what takes place in Acts chapter 15 is celebrating the grace of God. You know the beautiful thing about God's grace is God's grace gives us what we need, not what we want or what we actually deserve. Now think about that for a minute. God's grace gives us what we need, not what we want or what we deserve. As a parent, you can begin to understand this a little bit. When your kid expresses all of the wants that they have in their life, I want this, I want this, I want this. And because we're a little further along in life's journey than our children, we can begin to say, no, what you're saying, what you want, is not what you actually need. Instead, this is what you actually need. So whenever I was a kid, I was adventurous. Um, my nickname as a kid, please don't laugh. My, no, please don't laugh. My nickname as a kid was Fingers. <laughs> because I had to have my fingers and everything. I would go into the garage, and I would put my fingers in everything. I remember whenever I was 9 or 10 years old, I got a small keyboard for Christmas. Um, and that same day, on the 25th of December, I took all of the screws out of the back of that keyboard. I had it apart in a million pieces in my bedroom. I put it back together. It worked. I had a few extra pieces left. But the thing still worked. Had they called me, I could have saved them some money for all of these extra parts that were not needed in that keyboard. I remember that I would take a can of WD-40 and some duct tape, and I ruled the world because I wanted to have my fingers in absolutely everything. 
At one point, though, there's a photo of me. It's a Polaroid picture of me with a knife in my hand, a butter knife, a metal butter knife in my hand. And the lamp in our bedroom was, or the lamp in our living room was not working. I was at my grandparents' house. It was one of those big, huge, tall lamps with the monster lampshades on it, and it wasn't working. It probably just needed a new light bulb. But I took it upon myself at my young age to put my fingers into the situation to try to help out with a butter knife. And so what I saw was a cord coming out of the back of the lamp. It was going into this thing, into the wall. And so I thought, I turned the switch and it doesn't come on. Well, the problem must not be the lamp. It must be what's actually in the wall. No one had explained to me what electricity was just yet. I unplugged the lamp and with my butter knife, I thought I was going to stick it into the outlet and I was actually going to turn or make some type of adjustment to actually help the lamp come on. Now, that's what I thought the lamp needed in that moment. But my grandmother stopped me. Thank God she stopped me. I would have had just a small little jolt right there. But what I thought I needed to do in that moment was not what I actually needed. Thank God that he gives us what we need instead of what we think we actually need. That's good and bad. We, we perceive it that way. But the promise of God from Romans 8.28 is that he works all things for good. That's what we think is good and bad. The beautiful, the ugly, the mountain, the valley, everything, all of that, the scriptures tell us that God is faithful and he works it for his good. And the beautiful thing about Romans 8.28 where he works all things for our good is that there are no exceptions to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. That's a promise that we have to bank. That's a promise that we have to keep. And whenever we look at Acts chapter 15, we see this all throughout the Scripture, despite the attacks of the enemy in causing division and lack of unity. So let's look at Romans chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas are back in Jerusalem. They're celebrating all that's taken place. Acts chapter 15, this is what Luke gives us. Luke wrote this section. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch, and we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, listen to what takes place there in verse number one. And we have to actually read between the lines. The enemy is getting as close as he can to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what the liar always does. He will make you think that something is right. But our job is to sit with the Lord and discern what is being told to us. Every Sunday, whenever you leave here, you should, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you should have taken some notes, gone back to the Word of God, and let God speak to you about what we have studied on Sunday morning and then be able to discern what the Lord is saying to us. That's a part of all of our responsibilities in relationship with Jesus Christ. But here in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, the enemy has caused a lie to enter into the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now remember, what is the gospel? The gospel is that God came in the flesh. He wrapped himself like us, but yet was 100% God, 100% divine, and 100% human. 
Because this was the only thing that could solve the Genesis chapter 3 sin problem in all of our lives. God came to fix sin and pay a debt for us that we would never, ever be able to pay. We looked for about 4,000 years throughout the, Old Testament, uh, throughout the Old Testament history to actually see the law could not solve this problem. It had to be God in the flesh. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God came to pay our sin debt that we could not pay. And now in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, some people are infiltrating the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus did everything for us in his grace and gave us what we need, not what we deserve. And they're saying, you need Jesus plus this. The lie of the enemy in our life is that you need Jesus plus something else. But there's a song. That we sing, he is all we need. That's all we need. Jesus is all that we need. If Jesus was all that we had left, we would have more than enough to be able to sustain us in this life. Jesus is all that we need. But the liar, the enemy here, is saying, you need Jesus plus this. Verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. As they, as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Now this was... Uh, scholars tell us that this was the first time that some of these other church had heard the extent of what was happening in the spread of the gospel and Gentiles were giving their lives to Jesus Christ. And so we see them go back through these cities. They leave Antioch. They go through these cities. They get back to Jerusalem and they tell, hey, the gospel has spread. What Jesus said was actually true and people are surrendering their lives. They're entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They've taken the work of Jesus to pay the sin debt and they now are our brothers and they are our sisters. But watch what happens here in verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Listen, this is a lie from the enemy. Because Paul and Barnabas are saying it was Jesus that did this work. It was Jesus, God in the flesh, that paid the sin debt. It was Jesus that called us to repentance. It was Jesus that allowed us to be in the presence of God and filled with the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus who did this. And there have been people who have accepted that and are walking into it. But the Pharisees and the ones the enemy is using is saying, yes, that might be true. However, you need Jesus plus this action combined together so that you can be right in God. Paul said in um, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and 9, he's writing about the very, very same thing. And if you look at Paul's epistles, this very thing in Acts chapter 15, verse 5, is a lot of what Paul actually writes about and addresses in the churches. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and 9, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
That different gospel is Acts chapter 15, verse 5. The lie of the enemy that it is Jesus plus your actions that actually save you. There is nothing and no action and no way that we can ever live that will allow us to earn the grace of God. And Paul is saying, I am astonished that you believers, uh, you Galatian believers, would actually begin to believe this lie of a gospel. He says, it is really no gospel at all. This is Galatians 1, uh, verse 7, 8, and 9. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, I say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. And that gospel, Paul says, was the grace alone of Jesus Christ. This is why Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door. This is why he stood up and walked out after reading in the book of Romans that it was grace alone that can save us. We, as an American church, have to realize that we have to get back to this truth of the Scripture. It is Jesus' blood. It is God's grace, and that alone is all that we need. Amen? So let's read in verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. So now there's this council in Jerusalem. Is it Jesus alone that we need? Or is it Jesus plus this act of circumcision that these Gentiles now need in order to be in relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, what they've done is they've gone back to the Old Testament and said, here's a law that we're now going to enforce on this side of the cross of Jesus. It's Jesus plus circumcision, and that's the way that you stay saved. Then in verse 7, after much discussion, and I wish that Luke had given us some clues on what that discussion was right there. But all he says is after much discussion. This is what Peter says. Peter stood up and said this. Brothers and sisters, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then... Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No. Listen to verse 11. No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter said it is Jesus and Jesus alone. But you know this was not just a problem a couple of thousand years ago that took place in the Antioch church, in the Jerusalem church, and these, the Galatians church, the church in Ephesus, and all of these other church where Paul and, churches where Paul and Barnabas actually visited. This is the problem in our American church today. That we think we need Jesus and all of this other stuff. That we need Jesus plus 
and I know I'm going to walk on ice here, but I want to say it because I want you to get the truth of the scripture. We think that we need Jesus plus church attendance in order to be saved. We think that we need Jesus plus Bible study in order to be saved. We think that we have to have Jesus plus tithing, plus serving, plus doing this, that, and the other in order to be saved. And those things that I mentioned are some amazing things. And I would even say that they are vital in your relationship with Jesus. But those things do not save you. It is only the blood of Jesus that saves us. And whenever we think that we can do something in order to be saved, we are acting the exact same way that they were here in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. There is nothing, nothing that we can do in order to be saved. The best way that I can illustrate to you this fact is see this book. So I want you to watch this book. And I want you to watch what happens to this book. It's very simple. Now watch. Watch what happens. It fell. That's just like the grace of Jesus. Two parts. Gravity did its part, and the book did its part. Now what did the book do? Nothing. It just existed. Gravity is what made the book actually fall. The book didn't make itself fall. The book took no action. 100% of the reason that that book fell was because of gravity. And 100% of the reason that we can be saved is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're just like the book. We don't have to do anything other than to believe in him. We don't have to do anything other than to put our faith in him. We don't do anything. We let the blood of Jesus do its part and move us from where we are to where he wants us to be. Paul or Peter actually said, we believe that is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. In order to be loved by God, you don't have to do anything except accept the free gift that he's given to you and put your faith, your hope, and your belief 100% in him. And listen, this is how you see the faithfulness of God. Until you do this work, until you do the work of believing on the blood of Jesus Christ alone, you will not see the faithfulness of God. Because God wants you to enter into relationship with him first. Is he at work in our lives? Absolutely. Is he present in our lives? Absolutely. Is he at work behind the scenes? 100% yes. But you have to accept the blood of Jesus and his grace, and then you will begin to see the faithfulness of God. The first thing God wants you to see is the relationship that he is giving to us through his grace. And once you see that, it is as if scales have been pulled back from your eyes. And then things begin to make sense. And then you begin to see every moment in your life where God was present and where God was at work. What we have to do in this refuge of grace is we have to stand against the lie of the enemy that it is Jesus plus something that allows us to be saved. Now, I want to address another lie of the enemy. We can believe that all day long. 
we can accept that fact. And it is the doctrinal truth from the Scripture. And some of us would take that into our relationship with Jesus and say, well, if it's Jesus alone, then I don't have to do anything. Well, that's like going into a marriage and saying, all I have to do is get married and then go do whatever I want to do and I can stay married. Try it. You won't stay married very long because there's a relationship there. And in a relationship, there are some expectations for you to stay in that relationship. Now, the lie from the, the next lie from the enemy is that it's Jesus alone and nothing else. Well, that's what got you into the relationship. But what's going to keep you in the relationship is when you keep pursuing the one that gave you the grace. Are we going to mess up? Absolutely. And that's the beauty of God's grace. Whenever we mess up, he doesn't kick us out of the relationship. He doesn't say, hey, I never want to be around you ever again. He wants us to repent. That's the expectation to stay into the relationship is we repent and we turn away from our sin and we come back to the relationship. Because if Jesus is here and I'm facing this direction towards sin and I'm going towards sin, I've turned my back on God. And in order to stay in this relationship that he gave to me, what I have to do is turn away from sin, repent, go the other direction, and come back to this relationship. It is Jesus alone by which we are saved. But to stay in that relationship, we have some expectations that are placed on us. And that is to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we looked at that passage two weeks ago. Growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that the word grow is placed there before the word grace. We grow in grace by growing in that relationship. And I've known Melissa now for 20 years. And in that 20 years, our relationship has grown and it has blossomed. And we have grown closer and closer together. And that's how we have to be in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the reason of that relationship that we're in it to begin with is because of the grace of Jesus. There's nothing we can do to enter into that relationship because there is a barrier there and that barrier is sin. The only way to tear down that sin is the blood of Jesus that allows us to accept that grace and be in relationship. And we continue growing and growing in that relationship. And if we are facing sin, that relationship can't grow. There's some work actually done on our life. Billy Graham said it this way. The legalistic lie is this. For salvation, God does his part and I do my part. Now, the key word here, and I want you to catch this, is salvation. That's salvation. In order for us to have salvation with God, he does everything. But in order for us to be sanctified, another word, we have to do our part. And the scripture is clear. It's salvation, which is the relationship, and sanctification, which is holiness, which is the expectation that is placed on us, that we grow in the relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see as we keep going through the book of Acts here, as we keep moving through this book of Acts, the division and the lies that the enemy tries to bring into the church. 
that as the enemy works and tries to bring lies into this refuge of grace, we have to be just like the believers and the apostles here and stand up and say, no, 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 no. Salvation isn't do and do and do and do. It's not us. Salvation is it is done. It is finished. Jesus did the work on the cross. And it is Jesus alone that gave us the relationship. And then we grow in that relationship. So we have to stand against the lies of the enemy. You know, the amazing part from this passage of Scripture is that Paul and Barnabas' heart was really broken for all of these people. And that's why they get back to Jerusalem and have a conversation with the apostles. And they're saying, hey, look, the enemy is bringing this lie into the church that it is Jesus' blood and circumcision that gives us the relationship with Jesus. And Peter says, no, that's not the case. And I believe that when the scripture says, after much discussion, and then Peter stood up, I believe that that conversation went back to the very, very words of Jesus that remind us that it is his work and his mission and the stuff that he has done on the cross and the empty tomb that is sufficient for our relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul said it to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 this way, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That is us, our faith, accepting that gift, that relationship, making sure that sin wall has been torn down so that we can be in right relationship with God. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves. You see, he's saying it's not circumcision. It's not Bible study. It's not tithing. It's not this. It's not this. It's not this. It is only the grace of Jesus. Otherwise, it would be through us, through ourselves, that we, that we have earned this. Instead, he says, it is the gift of God, not by works what we have done, so that no one can boast. Because if that was the case, the one thing that I would want to do every Sunday morning is I would want to pull out our giving records and our serving records to the church. Well, we got quiet. I don't want to do that. Because those things come out of relationship. Not out of legalism of what we have to do to earn the grace of God. It's not how much we give. And if we wanted to play that game, we could say, okay, this person or this person or this person or this person has given the most. They've got the most grace, so they get to actually be the voice. Or we could say, this person served 20 hours. This, ser this person served 30 hours this week. This person, this last year, has served 2,400 hours or whatever that actually is. So then this person has served the most, so they've got the most grace. They then get to be the actual voice. But that is relying on ourselves. And we are not the voice in salvation. Jesus alone is the voice. So what have you relied on to try to earn your way back to God? You know, the enemy says, oh, you've done wrong. The enemy beats us up with shame and his lies. And he says, you have been bad. You've done wrong. You have sinned. And so you better get back in church. You better start tithing. 
You better start serving. You better start doing this, and you better start doing this, and you better start doing this so that you can be in relationship with God. Listen, that's the lies of the enemy. When you have sinned and when you have done wrong, the only thing you need is to turn away from sin, repent, and come back to God. It's His blood alone. You can't earn your way back to God. God just says, come back to me. Come back to me. Back at the end of December, we moved to a new home. And we were excited to to move. Um, It was really five houses, six houses right up the road from where we were living. We were excited to move um, just up the road to this house. And when we got to this house, we had a sign. I actually brought it this morning. Melissa and I went to one of her favorite stores, Hobby Lobby. And I bought this sign. Melissa didn't want this sign. I bought this sign because I love this sign. We bought it in the first house that we were at after we moved here. And um, you couldn't really see the front door until you got right up on the front door. And it was kind of an awkward entrance, and so this sign didn't fit. So we would try to find a place in our house, and it just didn't work. And so it ended up in the garage. And I was so excited to move to this new house because there was a perfect spot at our front door to hang up this sign. And so I'm going to show you a photo. This is the entrance of of our house and uh, where we live now. And over on the left, the sign is sitting there. Now, I hadn't hung it just yet because we had just moved in. But the sign is actually sitting there. And that spot right there beside our front door was the perfect spot for this sign to be. And I was so excited because we were finally going to be able to hang this sign by our front door. And it was going to be just a nice welcome into our house. It was covered. It wasn't going to get wet. It was a perfect spot for it. So we set it out there. I intended to hang the sign. And then we got a letter from our homeowners association. And I love homeowners association until they send me a letter. And I guess there's some rule where we live that you can't put signs by your front door. It's a crazy rule. Like, I'm okay with no trash being on your lawn. I'm okay with making sure that, um, you know, you uh, have your lawn mowed, your trees and your bushes trimmed. I'm okay with all of that stuff. But when they say I can't put a welcome sign by my front door, oh, I was furious. And I felt like it was me against the homeowners association. And I had to check myself because you know what I did? I drove around the neighborhood with my camera and I took photos of everybody that had signs by the front of their door. Granted, mine was the biggest. (laughs) The rest were little signs like this. And I was preparing a letter, nice letter, kind letter, back to the Homeowners Association to tell them about their woes and to tell them of why they're wrong and to show them everybody else that had a sign by their door. My neighbor has a sign right next to his doorbell. They have lived in that house since the 80s when it was built. 
The sign looks like it's been there since the 80s, but they were coming after me and my sign. So I begin to prepare this letter, add my evidence, my exhibits, to plead my case back to the homeowners association. I put it away, I bring it back up, I print it, I'm getting it in an envelope, I set it on my desk and I forgot it. And so then, uh, I don't remember if it was a couple of weeks later, I don't remember exactly how long it was, I ran across this envelope, I moved the sign, because I didn't want them to come knocking on my door. I put it in the garage, and that's where it has been since then for about five months now. And um, it was as if when I picked up that letter uh, quite a while down the road that the Holy Spirit just stilled me. And he said, why do you treat God's grace like you're treating the Homeowners Association? And so I pulled out my journal And I knew that this was an invitation from God to enter into conversation with him. So I began to write some prayer. I began to write some things. And I began to ask God, God, what is it you're trying to say? What is it that's in me that you are trying to cleanse and get out of me in this moment? And he said that I want to live by all the rules. And I want everybody else to live up to all of those rules as well. And one of my instincts is to point out Whenever God brings something to me that he needs to cleanse, one of my instincts is to say, well, this person and this person and this person. And God said, let me deal with everyone because it's my grace that wants to keep you. Why are we okay treating God like a homeowner's association? When the rules that we like have been talked about It's great, right? We love it. No complaints to you, God, because you're hitting all the rules that I like, all the things that I'm clear about, all the things that I I like. But whenever God starts dealing with us, we want to throw up the stop sign and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, have you seen what this person is doing? And have you seen what this person is doing? And have you seen what this person is doing? Here's the beautiful thing that we have to get, though, as I wrestled with this and I journaled through this. The beautiful thing that I got through all of this is despite the signs and the violations that we have at our heart's door, God still loves us. God still has the invitation to his relationship for every single one of us. Our job is to simply turn and rely on grace alone. So where have you been relying on your actions? Do you know what God's grace does for us? God's grace comes to our door and he takes those signs that are in violation and deals with it for us. He says, don't worry about that. I'm going to take care of that. Don't worry about the signs on everybody else's doors. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Just, just come to me and rely on grace alone. So what areas of your life have you been relying on your actions to keep that relationship with Jesus? Or maybe for the first time to enter into a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've been saying, I've got to get my life together before I come to Jesus. 
I've got to stop cussing. I've got to stop drinking. I've got to stop doing this, or I've got to stop doing this. I've got to stop sinning. I've got to stop going to these places. I've got to stop doing all of this, and then I'm going to come to you, Jesus. Listen, that is living out Acts chapter 15, verse 1, and saying it's Jesus plus this. It's not. What you have to do is stop running and start coming to Jesus with all of your junk and with all of your signs that are in violation and saying, God, I'm just coming to you. Will you accept me? Can I receive your grace and do that work by faith? And then we will see the faithfulness of God. So what have you been trying to do? What have you been trying to do to earn the grace of Jesus? Listen, you've got it. It's there. All you have to do is come to the table and eat the meal of God's grace and take that to be with you. It's here, and it's for you. All you have to do is rely on that. You know what? God's grace not only saves us, but it keeps us. It keeps us. And so when we are running towards sin, he doesn't kick us out. He just says, hey, turn around. Bring your sign, your violation with me, and I'll deal with that because his blood covered that also. So what have you been relying on? I prayed this morning before I came in a little longer than I, do, than I normally do on Sundays because I began to pray hard and diligently that God would reveal to us in our lives where it's Jesus plus something so that this morning we could break the chains of the lies of the enemy and say it's grace alone. It's grace alone. In just a minute, we're going to stand and sing. And I want to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to examine your life, to examine your heart. Where are you adding to the grace of Jesus? Where are you saying, God, I know it's your grace, but yet I've got to do X, Y, and Z? This morning, let's break that chain. Let's break that lie, that curse from the enemy so that we can stand free, free under the grace of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Thanks for joining us at Whitechapel Church Online. We pray that today's sermon blessed you and that you'll continue to join us as we lean into God's word together. Until next time, have a great week.